Our scripture reading this morning comes from two passages. The first in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 to 14. That's at page 723 of your pew Bible. And then we'll uh, flip forward to Matthew chapter 2, which is on page 934 if you want to mark that. Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you, all assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the arm. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Keter's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Neboth will serve you. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple. Who are these that fly along like clouds, like doves to their nests. Surely the islands look to me. In the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your sons from afar with their gold and silver to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Foreigners will rebuild your walls, and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I struck you, in favor I will show you compassion. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut, day or night, so that men may bring you the wealth of the nations, their kings led in triumphal procession. For the nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish. It will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the pine, the fir, and the cypress together to adorn the place of my sanctuary, and I will glorify the place of my feet. The sons of your oppressors will come bowing down before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion, of the Holy One of Israel. In Matthew chapter 2, page 934, the visit of the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. 
When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all, Israel, all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warmed, warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this scripture. We ask that you bless it to us and that you bless your servant Mark as he comes to bring the message that you have laid on his heart. And we ask that you give us hearts to hear and understand and um, uh, to apply the teachings that you have for us through him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Kate. Well, I hope you still have your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 60. We'll be in the text in a few minutes. So far as I know, it still begins on page 723 of your pew Bibles. 723, Isaiah 60. In just a few minutes, we'll look deeply into God's word from where we left off last Sunday in Isaiah 60, and we'll also continue to make the connection between the prophecy of Isaiah and God's people Israel and God's people the church and Yahweh with God in Christ Jesus. Last week we began by exploring an insight God in Christ Jesus has been giving me, maybe not only me, hopefully, but at least me, over the course of the, at least the last 20 years. Now, I guess that might mean that I'm a slow learner, uh, but nevertheless, I do believe it helps us to understand better and more fully what God the Holy Spirit is teaching us in and by his word, and specifically about himself. This has to do with the various ways God in Christ Jesus expresses himself, defines and describes himself, and refers to himself in his word written in the Bible. A good and necessary assumption for us is to make that God's self-revelation then 
now and in between, and also into the future, is intentional. It's deliberate. It's personal. And it's necessary for us. From a New Testament and biblical Christian gospel point of view, God's greatest revelation of himself to us and for us then, now, and forevermore was, is, and forever will be the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son and Word of God, Lord of all and Savior of the world. Similarly, God's greatest Old Testament revealing of himself, first, of course, to his people Israel, but also now to us in the church and even ultimately to the whole world, and the most relevant for us today also is found in his revealed covenant name, Yahweh, and his sovereign actions, and who we can often associate closely with Jesus Christ in the New Testament. We've mentioned there are three primary ways the one true and living God of the Old Testament refers to himself. First, Yahweh, translated as Lord. You have the, lower, uh, the small uh, uppercase letters, capital L, small case, capital O-R-D, of which there are more than 6,080, 6, I'm sorry, 6,800 occurrences. Yahweh is translated in our English scriptures more than 6,800 times. And this is God's personal, his revealed covenant name of which Moses was the first to hear. Secondly, Elohim, literally gods, that's what the word means, of which there are about 2,500 occurrences, revealing God to be a plurality with singular purpose, indicated always by a plural noun, Elohim, gods, if you will, but with a singular verb, always. And thirdly, Adonai, literally my Lord, of which there are 450 occurrences that refer more to God's functional role as ruling and reigning Lord over all creation, like king or queen, something like that. And there are several different and notable combinations of these, adhere, these reference. Um, Yahweh Elohim, for example, the Lord God, um, and a and, and number of others. The, the personal or covenant name of God in Christ Jesus, Yahweh, was first revealed, as I mentioned before, to Moses at the burning bush before Yahweh delivered his people, Israel, from physical and national bondage, as well as religious and spiritual oppression, all still relevant to us today. We, too, need to be freed from physical bondage to sin. We also need to be freed from national bondage to idolatry, corruption, and injustice. We, too, need to be delivered from religious oppression, that is, freed from the spiritual oppression of a dead religiosity about God, rather than a living relationship of faith and love with God expressed through our obedience to his word by the power of God's spirit. Now, I'd, I'd like to show you how on point and relevant, relevant this insight is about God in Christ Jesus as Yahweh. 
This past Wednesday morning, Bruce Hildebrand and I were taking in via live stream an excellent conference for workers in Christian ministry called the Basics Conference from Alistair Begg and Parkview Church in Cleveland, Ohio. He was preaching from the amazing but neglected little New Testament letter Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, by the way, that he's going through with his Parkview congregation on Sundays. Pastor Begg was reading his text for the morning, Jude, verses 5 through 7, and the last conference session. And I had quite a shock, a good shock, a kind of insight shock, a shock of revelation even. But first, believe it or not, we need to hear Numbers 14, verses 20 to 38. And as I read, I'd like for you to listen for Yahweh's words and Yahweh's promises of action, both of judgment and of favor, and the basis for each. And so when capital L, small caps, O-R-D, Lord shows up, the Lord, I'm going to read it as it, says, as it appears in the text as Yahweh. Verse 20, Numbers chapter 14 and following. Then Yahweh said, I have pardoned according to your, speaking of Moses' word, but truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, none of them will, will see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. So Pastor Begg read in Jude verse 5 on Wednesday morning how Jude summarizes these events here that we see in Numbers chapter 14. There are, are several other accounts that are very similar to this as well as the uh, Israelites turned away from the promised land and went into the, went into the wilderness where all of those who refused to go into the promised land would, would die and only those who believed or, or, or their descendants, uh, their children, uh, would enter the land. So. He, he, he reads Jude verse 5 about these events, and this is what I heard. It's Jude 5. I mean, you can turn there if you want. You can check it out. But Jude writes to the church. This is a general letter to the church. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. What? I thought that was Yahweh. Well, it was. But Jude said, said it was Jesus. Yes, it was. Do you mean it was both of them? No. I mean, Jesus is both of them. The pre-incarnate Jesus was and is Yahweh. The incarnate Yahweh is and will forever be Jesus. 
How gobsmackingly cool is that? How eternally profound is that? And fantastically exciting and cosmically crazy is that? And I know that some things that thrill my heart won't thrill your heart, and we we put that to the test every Sunday, um, don't we? But this is incredibly uh, meaningful uh, to me. The incarnate Yahweh is and will forever be Jesus. But did you hear that little tidbit from Jude before that? Now, verse 5, I want to remind you, speaking to his young Christian pastors and young Christian people, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, so he's reminding them of something that they once fully knew, but it seems that they have forgotten it, or at least are forgetting to live in light of it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So the apostles and the early church once had this knowledge and possibly lost it or forgot it or more likely was failing to live in light of it. Yahweh was and is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is and forever will be the incarnate Yahweh. All of that went through my heart, my mind and my soul in an instant. I don't think Bruce knew it, but I was dancing and jumping for joy on the inside. There it was, spelled out exactly in Jude 5, what I've been working through and have begun to share with you over the last while. So whenever we read one or more of the 6,800 occurrences of Yahweh, the Lord, in the Old Testament, what more of God's revealing of himself by his covenant name Yahweh teaches us about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when we read the New Testament. And when we read the Old Testament, what can our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ teach us about Yahweh in the Old? For a test case, just a suggestion, read Psalm 106. This is a lovely psalm to teach this, to to, to test this reading of the text. Psalm 106, all of it, or even just the end of it, verses 40 to 48. I mean, all of it is good. All of it brings to bear this same idea, but, but read Psalm 106, and, and especially verses 40 to 48, if you, if you don't read any more of it, and answer the question, does this Yahweh, the Lord, or Yahweh el Hai, the Lord our God, or Yahweh el Hai Yisrael, the Lord, the God of Israel, sound and act like Jesus Christ, or what? Speaking of revelation and revealing, this is a very good place to review our central truth. We looked at it a little bit ago, but let's just, let's just express it one more time. It's there in your bullets on the upper left-hand corner on the inside. The Lord God, this is, this is technically, this is Yahweh Elohim. The Lord God promises to all his people, Israel and the church, future glory, so we might glorify him eternally and exalt Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords forever. Speaking of Alistair Begg, before we continue, I'd like to pray my custom version of the old Anglican prayer he often prays before preaching. Let's let's pray for just, just a moment. God, our Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, 
give us. What we are not, make us. What we need not, protect us. And where we have fallen short, forgive us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are talking in Isaiah chapter 60 about the future promises of Yahweh for his people. Of course, this means, first of all, for his people Israel, then. But secondly, by faith, we receive Yahweh's future promises for his people, the church, now. And thirdly, there will be an ultimate fulfillment of Yahweh's future promises for all his people, Israel and the church, in Jesus Christ. Since virtually the earliest days after the Holy Spirit expanded the church beyond Israel and the Jews, there has been an anti-Israel and anti-Jewish constituency in the church, so-called, and among Christians, so-called. Sometimes this is a misreading of the Bible, leading to the belief that the church and Christians have replaced Israel and the Jews in, in the plan and heart of God. It hasn't, and we haven't. One truth that we will see in Isaiah 60 and 61 is that Yahweh, that Jesus, has yet unfulfilled future promises and plans for his people Israel and the Jewish people, and we, Gentiles, actually join them into God in Christ Jesus. As early as Paul's writing by the Holy Spirit in the majestic book of Romans, there were those Christians and churches erroneously ready to move on from a Christian faith and a Christian church grounded in the Old Testament scriptures and the Jewish Messiah. Jesus had some, some, somehow become not Jewish. This was just the beginning of problems with calls to, as Andy Stanley puts it, unhitch the Christian faith from the Old Testament. He's preaching that today. It's not just a mistake that he made several years ago. He's preaching that today. Unhitch the Christian faith from the Old Testament. Wrong. Wrong. Jesus Christ gave himself for the salvation of all peoples, both Jew and Gentile. The basis, the foundation of Jesus' sacrifice is the Old Testament, as is the moral foundation of all human thriving and well-being. So I was very glad and encouraged when a relatively short while ago I came across this excellent volume in the New American Commentary series in Bible and Theology series, and it's by Barry Horner, and it's entitled Future Israel, why Christian anti-Judaism must be challenged. It has an endorsing forward written by Moshe Rosen, a very well-known and well-respected Jewish Christian or Messianic Jewish biblical scholar. And before I read from Barry Horner's personal introduction, I need to acquaint you with a big theological word that will show up here shortly. And that big theological word is eschatology. Eschatology, let's say it together, eschatology. And the, that's the noun, and the as, adjective is fun to say, eschatological. Isn't that fun? Let's say it together. Eschatological. Yeah, so eschatology, noun, eschatological, the adjective. And they have to do with our various understandings of end times theology. 
In other words, the pre and the mid and the post-tribulational return of Christ, which we sometimes call the rapture, the pre, ah, or post-millennial establishment of God's kingdom, they are all about eschatology, and there are many other categories as well. Okay, so here we go with Barry Horner on page XIX, page 19 of the introductory matter, in his personal introduction. Quote, if a Christian's and a church's, I'm adding and a church's because, well, we're a church. If a Christian's and a church's, eschatology produces indifference, detachment, or even antagonism towards things Jewish, though there continues to be manifest unbelief within national Israel, there is most likely something fundamentally wrong with that eschatological expression. True doctrine, rightly comprehended, does not produce bad attitudes or a lack of compassion for the Jews. Where an unsavory attitude prevails, even with a mere facade of token respect for the Jewish people, there is need for a return with freshness to the only final source that can solve an issue having such profound moral implications. And that is a return to the objective, truthful, inscribed word of God. I've never heard it put any better than that. And all God's people said? So from our text in Isaiah 60 and verse 4, we'll see that, number one, if you're taking notes or keeping score, taking hold of future promises of God in Christ Jesus for his people. So it's taking hold of future promises of God in Christ Jesus for his people, both Israel and the church, and that'll be the same for each of the points, the same beginning, taking hold of future promises of God in Christ Jesus for his people, both Israel and the church. So if you're writing it, you only have to write it once, really. This requires seeing what he is doing with spiritual eyes, which requires belief first. For both individual Christians as well as Christian churches, a saving and sustaining relationship with the one true and living God has always required, at least since the fall of humanity into sin, a faith-first posture. We must believe before we can be. Sin, the death that followed as a consequence to sin's entry into the world, and its devastating effect on the whole creation, especially human beings created to image God and represent him on the earth, have rendered us incapable of seeing into the spiritual. We can only see and relate to the material. At least, not on our own. We need help. The help of the Holy Spirit. Because in God's realm, seeing is not believing. Rather, believing enables us to begin to see and to hear and to enter into what God is doing in the world, past, present, and sometimes even future. So really, verse 4 is a plea to believe Yahweh, to trust Yahweh, to join Yahweh in what he is doing and will do for his people. Lift up your eyes, he is saying, or lift up your spiritual eyes both to Israel then and to us now. Look all around and see. 
They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist or even a prophet to understand and connect this verse to what is happening today in and for the church and what will happen for Israel. People from all over the world will gather and come to us. Is that not happening right now? If you don't believe it or realize that, lift up your eyes all around and see I mean it, right, right here, right now. Lift up your eyes all around in this place at this time and see. Look around. Look, 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 look. Look around. You're not looking. Couples don't look at each other. Look at people around you. I caught that Doug and Shauna up there in the, in the balcony. Okay, now I'm going to go out on a limb here. Do not saw it off behind me. I'll never go out there again. However... And whenever you got here, if you came here to Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, and Bethesda Church from somewhere else in the world, I want you to stand. Go ahead, stand up. If you came here from somewhere else, I want you to stand. Anybody else? Anybody? I see one there. Yes. Now turn around and look at you. Yes, you count. I count. I'm, I'm one of them. My whole family. Look around you. Oh, <laughs> Rosemarie finally. <laughs> look around you. Literally, look all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on your hip. You can sit down now. Isn't God good? Isn't Yahweh true? Isn't Jesus worth the journey, however long it took? Okay, I'd, I'd really love to stay there for a while and get all of your stories, but I ain't got that kind of time. So let's go on to number two. Once again, taking hold of future promises of God in Christ Jesus for his people, both Israel and the church, requires receiving with gladness and hope. Gladness and hope. What he alone can and what he alone will give, which also requires belief first. Taking hold of future promises of God in Christ Jesus for his people, both Israel and the church, requires receiving with gladness and hope what he alone can give and what he alone will give, which also requires belief first. I was so glad when in an earlier session of that basics conference, Bruce and I had caught a bit of on Wednesday, Alistair Begg of Parkview Church brought out his executive pastor who serves as the manager of operations. He asked him, Ken I think it was, although I wouldn't swear to it, whether he had brought a copy of their 30-year strategic plan as he had asked him to do. Ken, Ken, we'll call him Ken, whether it's Ken or not, replied that he had. Well, where is it? Alistair asked. It's right here. And Ken handed him, now, now this isn't a four by six inch index card, that's what he handed him, but it was blank. He handed him a blank index card and Alistair held it up. His point was, and my point is, that we must, give, we must leave room for God to do what only he can do and only he will do in all our planning, in all our financing, in all our expecting, and in all our staffing. And you know what? He has. 
and I have every hope and belief that he will. Again, not hope in the wishing sense, like I hope I get that present for Christmas, but hope in the sense that it gives us a vision for the future. There is no need of God's people, Israel then or future and the church now or future, that God has not and will not provide according to his riches and glory. I'll just give you one example that we've experienced here. We have not looked for a staff person in 12 years. I want you to think about that. Not an administrative coordinator, not an associate pastor, not a senior pastor either. But God already had placed in our body precisely what we needed, although we didn't even know we had the need yet. And I've seen that happen over and over and over again. Does it happen in every church? No. Has it happened in the churches that I've been at? Yeah. It's a matter of faith and belief and looking around. What is God doing? Why are you here? But remember, in God's economy, seeing is not believing. But believing always leads us into seeing. Verse 5. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. Number three, taking hold of future promises of God in Christ Jesus for his people, both Israel and the church, requires believing first and then taking the gospel of Jesus Christ into the world. And let me, let me explain to you what I mean by the world. Right across the street over there is part of the world. I'm not talking about only going on the other side of the globe, although we need to do that too. Frankly, I, I think we need to do more of training indigenous missionaries to their own people rather than white people and all their stuff going over there to teach them about their white God. So we have some conversation to, to, to have on that. But if we have taken hold of God's future promises in Christ Jesus for his people, then that requires us believing first, yes, and then taking the gospel of Jesus Christ out into the world wherever we are. And maybe he'll call some of us to go somewhere else to do that on his behalf, but that doesn't leave the rest of us off the hook. We take the gospel to the world but what does it require? Believing first. In who? Well, in Jesus Christ, Yahweh in the flesh. In what? The gospel that has the power to save and we cannot be ashamed of it. Now, surely you're, you're saying at this point, okay, I've been hanging on throughout this sermon, but really the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world from Isaiah 60, come on, man. No, really, I, I'm totally serious. First off, what were camels used for 700 years before Jesus' birth? I'm asking, really, what were camels used for? Somebody help me. Say it loud there. Transportation, check. What else? Transporting goods. Beasts of burden, check. Good, yeah, what else? Food, I don't, I don't think they ate camels, actually. Is that what you mean? But um, 
Oh, milk. Okay, yeah, good. I didn't, ha- I didn't write that down. I should have. I'll add that one. Anything else? You know they use camels to race? That's from hundreds, thousands of years ago. Also, one other thing, transfer or aggregation of wealth. Right? It, was a, it was a mark of wealth how many camels you had. Right? Yes, all these things. But the primary thing, the unique thing that camels could do, and they're still doing it today, listen to this now, is that they travel long distances carrying heavy burdens, including people and their wares, across vast deserts where there is little water. That is a unique role of camels in the world. Okay, now turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Verses 11 and 12, I'll bet some of you were wondering what the intersection between prophecy of the, uh, the prophecy of Isaiah and the Gospel of Matthew would be. Kate did. She, she wrote me back and said, are you sure these are the verses? These are the verses. Okay. I asked her to read all 12 verses because this, is, this part of the story isn't really easily parsed. So we started at verse 1, but verses 11 and 12 are really the point. Well, here it is. Listen to this. And going into the house, they, speaking of the three wise men from the east or the magi from the east, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Oh, did you notice the quotation before it in verse 6? Speaking to Bethlehem, as this passage in in Isaiah 60 speaks to Jerusalem at large. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now back to Isaiah 60, verse 6. First, I can't help but speculate that these three wise men from the east traveled the great distance across great deserts by camel. But that's not the point either. The point is the gold, the frankincense, and the good news of Christ's coming. Surely we can see that, right? To do so, are we believing in order to see? Verse 6. Now, now I I have to say, and I did not check this in the NIV, so that's on me. Um, But there was a phrase missing, and I don't know, uh, Kate, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to call you out here or anything, but, but there's a phrase, and shall bring good news, that's in my English Standard Version that, that Kate didn't read earlier. And I just, just want to make note of that. In case it isn't there, I have to go find out why. And uh, if it is there, then that makes the sermon much better. So uh, verse 6, a multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of Yahweh. Can we see it? Can we see it? Finally, 
Our fourth and last point, which we derive from verse 7 of Isaiah 60, is this. Taking hold of future promises of God in Christ Jesus for his people, both Israel and the church, requires trusting Yahweh's holiness to love and his power to save, making his beautiful house even more beautiful, which will also require belief first. Verse 7 says, All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you, the rams of Nabaioth, shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. To do this verse and the truth in it justice would require a whole sermon, maybe even a whole series of sermons. And I would locate it in the book of Hebrews that reveals to us and for us the massive and vital truth that Jesus himself, Yahweh in the flesh, is and forever will be our great high priest before the one true and living God but I ain't got that kind of time either. So we'll just summarize it. If we can believe it in order to see it, I think we can do some summarizing that might do us some good and God in Christ Jesus some glory. Here, verse seven is clearly referring to Yahweh's house, which at this time would have been the great temple in Jerusalem. Indeed, we noted last week that Jerusalem is the first you of this text. So when we read, arise, shine, for your light has come, We find out in verse 14, look at verse 14, very last two lines. They shall call you the city of the Lord or city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. We get a little bit more in verse 12, uh, verse 10 rather. Foreigners shall build up your walls and their king shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. And we looked at uh, Revelation last week, day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. So the you arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you, is Jerusalem first. That's what we first see. But that was then, and this is now. So in the now, both God's people, Israel especially, but also God's people, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, are in full view here, the dwelling place of God. So um, we, we sang that wonderful song about Zion. And Zion is both a, a, a physical or geographical place, but Zion is also a concept Zion is the place where God meets his people in Jerusalem, in the great temple, in the Holy of Holies. But Zion is, if you step back for a minute, Zion is also a concept, a a theological understanding of wherever God's presence is, that's Zion. That's where we want to be. And we know from New Testament understanding that God has taken up his presence in and among his people. So he literally goes wherever we go. And so this text, yes, is speaking of Israel. Yes, it's speaking of the church, not the buildings, but the people, but even individual Christians who have come to him in faith, individual Jewish Christians or Messianic Jews who have come to faith in Christ. God's dwelling place is among his people and their dwelling place will be in him. Um, 
And while the sacrificial system is also in direct view, the last couple of lines of verse 7, they, will sh- they shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. So this is pointing toward a, a day when sacrifice will no longer be required, and we know that that ended at the cross because Jesus gave all that was required. He took upon all of our sin, past, present, and future, of every individual human being who ever lived and would come to him in faith. So there's no more sacrifice required. So while the sacrificial system was or is in direct view, the point Yahweh is making is that as beautiful as that sacrificial system may have been in that it kept God's people for a greater redemption and a once-for-all salvation in Christ's future, it would be, and it has now been replaced by the even more beautiful and costly blood of Jesus Christ, Yahweh in the flesh himself. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of, rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar. It's already been paid. They've already been redeemed. They've already been adopted. And I... Yahweh will beautify my beautiful house. Can you see it? If you can, that must mean you believe it. Praise God in Christ Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we we thank you for this wonderful word of yours. We pray, Lord, that you would allow us to understand it. Make make my words better than they were. Bring real understanding to our minds and our hearts. And I know I've been working on this for 20 years. Ron's been working on it for 30 years. Um, I'm not saying he's endorsing these ideas. I'm just saying we work at it and we still have so much to understand and to learn. Help us to to at least get a glimpse of what your word is telling us today, what your word is teaching us today, what your Holy Spirit is sharing with us today. This wonderful vision of future glory, first for you and then secondly for us. Not that we're grasping it, not that that's the reason that we are here this morning, but, but that is what your promise is. And we recognize that taking hold of your future promises for us require a faith-first posture before we can see it, before we can take hold of it. So help us to believe you. First, believe in you, that you are the one true and living God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent and the Holy Spirit that you have given but also to believe your promises to us, that you will fulfill every single one, to not get ahead of you, to say things that have yet been unfulfilled, have been, and get confused about that, misunderstand the things promised for heaven, claim them here on earth. We we don't want to be in that place either. We want to be right where you are, making you our Zion, 
the place where we always want to be. And we are so amazed that with us is where you want to be. That's, that's an incredible truth that we find in Scripture over and over again. Uh, help us to receive it by faith, gladly and with hope. And we will thank you and we will praise you for all that you do in and among us as we try to think deeply and try to follow fully the Lord Jesus Christ, Yahweh, in the flesh. In his name we pray. Amen. I just want us to hear Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12 as we go this morning. Thank you for coming, all of you. Happy Mother's Day again. And uh, we look forward to more of what the Lord is doing among us these days. And we thank him for it. John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. See you next time.